I got a friend who goes to Hope to let me borrow his car, and I picked up Hope's founding pastor to get some answers. I bought you a little present. Is this your car? <laughs> no, it's not my car. I work at Hope. While we were on this test drive, we spent some time digging into the why behind Hope. But how do we do that? The conversation turned to something that Hope calls the five marks. These are five characteristics of a growing follower of Jesus. The first mark we talked about was summed up in the phrase, live obediently. In today's culture, the word obey doesn't easily roll off the tongue. So I thought Mike might have something to say about it. When I think of living obediently, I always think of this young couple at church, Matt and Shannon, who were models. You know, he was the number one underwear model for Abercrombie and Fitch. In fact, once we met him, Laura Googled him, and I told her, you are not allowed to Google him anymore. Right? <laughs> you know, and this Shannon, she was on America's Next Top Model, and Laura and I were in a hotel somewhere flipping channels, and as we were flipping through channels, I said, go back, that was Shannon, and I knew her from the church. We went back, and it happened to be the episode she was on where she was put off the show because she would not dress as scantily as they wanted her to dress for a photo shoot. And I'll never forget, she says, the only person who will ever see me that way is my husband. And it's just so refreshing to hear stories like that because we just kind of buy into the idea that, well, nobody really does that anymore. Well, that's not true. Right. You know, there are some people that are gonna do life God's way. <laughs> I just had this thought. I think it wouldn't be like a Christian interview if we didn't drive through Chick-fil-A. Oh, we gotta go You've through Chick-fil-A. Gotta Chick -fil -A. go through Chick-fil-A. Scared me a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, a little bit. I gained a few inches. What? <laughs> How you doing? Can I get an unsweet tea with like a splash of lemonade? You can once I get your name. Don. Don. Yep. All right. Will that be all for you guys today? Oh no! I want a bottle of water and a chicken biscuit. Oh man, you want a chicken biscuit? I want a chicken biscuit. Oh my goodness. Chick fil A. Not Honor Palmer filet. <laughs> we need to be busier. There's nothing else I can explain that. But anyway, it's so good to see you guys this weekend. It's great to be back with you. And uh, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you've learned that our mission statement here at Hope is to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, Chase and Donnie just did an unbelievable job unpacking that and explaining exactly what it meant. But if you missed those weeks, let me just sum it up this way. It basically means this. When you walk into the door of any of our campuses, we're going to love you regardless of the baggage, the mess, the complications that you bring with you. We don't care where you've been. We don't even care what you're presently up to. We're going to love you where you are. But here's the thing. We don't want you to stay where you are. We don't want you to stay with all that baggage and all that mess. We want to encourage you to become what Jesus Christ wants you to become. In other words, we want to encourage you to experience the life that Jesus Christ died so that you could experience as a Christian, a life of joy and peace, a life of forgiveness, a life that has purpose and meaning, and the pursuit of getting from where you are with all your mess and baggage to the place that God wants you to be, it's known in the Bible as discipleship. Now, this isn't new to Hope Community Church. This is a term that Jesus came up with. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he said this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're to build relationships with people, come alongside people, and hopefully lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then we're to help them grow up in their faith. Now, from a theological position, this is called the Great Commission. 
And it is the mission that God has put right at the, right at the core, right at the heart of Hope Community Church from the day it was conceived. It's not just my mission. It's not just the mission of the staff. It's our mission together. Literally, we are to lock arms together and play our part in the accomplishment of God's mission for his church. Now, that's why we're in the series for the next few weeks calling How, Why, and What. It's a reminder if you've been around for a while, it's more of a refresher course as to what drives us as Christians to do what we do. It reminds us what it is to be a disciple, an all-in disciple who's interested in reproducing and making other disciples. And as you heard in the video at Hope, we have five marks. Sometimes they're called five indicators or sometimes five characteristics. I actually like the idea of indicators because this is not a list. It's not five things that you could check out you should be doing. Over time, as we become more and more like Jesus, these are things that should become a part of who we are, just a part of our DNA. It's not about what we do. It becomes about who we are. And these five marks are this. First of all, we live obediently. If God says to do it, we're going to encourage you to do it. The second is to serve selflessly. If you see a need, respond to the need. We want you to give generously. We want you to share willingly the story of how Jesus Christ has changed your life. And then we want you to connect intentionally in community so that we can do together what we cannot do as individuals. Now, we're going to be unpacking each of these over the next few weeks. But I want to begin this weekend by talking about why it's so important that we live lives of obedience to Christ. By the way, let me just say this. This was so important to Jesus, he actually talked about this when he was given the Great Commission. Think about it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then when you get to verse 20, he says this, teach them to obey, what's that word? Everything. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded. And basically, that's Jesus' way of saying, study this book, learn your book, this book, and then make sure that you bring your life and your lifestyle into alignment with this book. Now, I want to begin by showing you what it looks like this weekend to live obediently by looking at one of, I think, probably our favorite stories, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to chapter one. Uh, for most of you, you will never find it. So we'll put the verses, we'll put the verses up on the screen. But this is what's interesting. We all know the story about Daniel in the lion's den. He got thrown in the lion's den. Nothing happened to him. He was safe. He got out of the lion's den. But I want you to see something in the story that you've never seen before, and it's actually what makes the story so unbelievable. Daniel chapter 1, as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of background to bring you up to speed. Daniel is a young man. He's probably about 15, 16 years old. He's been his middle teen years. He's living in Jerusalem with his family and friends, 586 B.C. That may be a date that you remember from high school history. 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and he conquers Jerusalem. And after defeating the city and destroying basically the city of Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to take some of the best and the brightest young adults with him back to Babylon. Daniel is one of those young men who is taken into captivity. So understand, when this book opens, Daniel is now 800 miles away from Jerusalem, okay? So he's 800 miles from home in this decadent, perverse, 
godless culture. And if you can't imagine what that was like, uh, just think Chapel Hill. But anyway, King Nebuchadnezzar, his goal is very, very simple. He's got these bright, genius young men that he's brought from Jerusalem. He wants, he wants to make Babylonians out of these young men so that they can make a positive impact. They can contribute to the Babylonian culture. But he's got to win these guys over. I mean, after all, they're young men who are in captivity in Babylon. So he decides that he's going to wine and dine them. You can see it in chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now understand, immediately Daniel has a problem because Daniel knew that if he was being served the best food from the king's table, this is also food that had first been offered up to idols. This is food that's been offered up to false God. He understands the Babylonian culture. He also knows from his Jewish upbringing that this violates the covenant. This violates the relationship that he has with God. See, I'm confident that Daniel's parents had taught him the monotheistic one God lifestyle of the Jews. I guarantee you Daniel could quote the Ten Commandments. He understood Leviticus. He understood numbers. He understood books like Deuteronomy. He understood the do's, the don'ts, the rules, the laws. But all of a sudden, he is dropped into this free-thinking, decadent society. He's going to be taught their philosophy. He's going to be taught their literature. He's going to be taught their language. In other words, they're going to try to drain out of him all of his traditional thinking, and it's going to be replaced with a whole new set of values. And it goes on to tell us in verse 5, there was actually a process. This was to be done over a three-year period of time. Now understand, this is the situation that young Daniel finds himself in. But I want you to notice his decision, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved. Literally that Hebrew word means he purposed in his heart. He decided ahead of time not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He resolved. He decided ahead of time. And basically his decision was this. Regardless of what I face in Babylon, regardless of what I face, I am not going to disobey God. And I think it was as if God looked at Daniel at this moment in his life and thought, wow, I'm going to use this kid to do some great things. And it was simply because Daniel had made up his mind that he was going to be obedient to God no matter what it cost him. Now understand, that sets the scene for the story that I want us to look at. It's found over a few chapters in Daniel chapter 6. Nebuchadnezzar has died. There's a new king. His name is King Darius. And over the past few years, Daniel, because of his skill, his talent, his hard work, his dependability, uh, his integrity, he has now been promoted to the role of commissioner. That means that he's in charge of all the guys who collect all the taxes for the kingdom. And basically, it was Daniel's job to make sure that the amount of taxes collected was properly reported to the king. So you get to chapter 6, verse 3, and it tells us that Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, the satraps, that's just another name for tax collectors, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That basically means that Daniel's going to be the number two guy, the number two guy in the most powerful kingdom in the known world at that time. I mean, that's pretty heady stuff, right? Right? 
And it says in verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. They're like, we got to find something on this guy. So they get together their judiciary committee, you know, go after their witch hunt. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. See, that's going on with Daniel. It's because, see, they don't like the idea that this young snot-nosed foreigner is going to be elevated to this position where he has all this power. So they do everything they can to get some dirt on Daniel to bring him down. They tell him, they check his files, you know, they hack into his phone and into his computer. They watch every move he makes. But according to verse 4, they can't find anything that Daniel is doing wrong. They can't find anything that Daniel has done wrong in his past. They can't even find an unpaid parking ticket. And so finally, these men, they come to the conclusion, listen, we're never, ever going to find something to charge Daniel with unless it has to do with his beliefs. Unless it's something to do with the faith and the God that he believes in. So they come up with what they think is an ingenious plan. They go in to see the king, verse 7. It says, the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. And what self respecting king wouldn't like that. Everybody's got to pray to me. Everybody's got to bow down to me. Now, your majesty, issue the decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So Darius put the decree in writing. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, just as he had done before. Now, understand what's at stake. Remember, Daniel was just a young man, 15, 16. He was just a slave when he was brought to Babylon. He's getting ready to be promoted to the number two guy. He is getting ready to be handed the keys to the entire kingdom. I mean, Daniel is probably strutting around Babylon with a robe on that says life is good. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And let's be honest, most of us, most of us, if we're honest, if faced with the same situation, we would immediately begin to think through this and we would go into justification mode. We would think things like, you know what? It's obvious that God has put me in this position and it's obvious that he's put me here for a reason. I think he put me here to make a difference. I think he put me here to make an impact on this decadent, perverted culture. And I've gotten so far, I'm sure he doesn't want me to blow it now. So I'm gonna continue to pray. I'm just going to make sure the curtains are pulled really, really tight. Worst case scenario, I'm going to go in the bathroom and shut the door and pray. It's not that big of a deal, but not Daniel. It says he went home and he prayed as he had always prayed. And it was because, see, when he was a young man, what did he do? He decided. When he was a young man, he resolved to be obedient. He decided that he belonged to God. And he decided, I don't care what I face, I am not going to disobey God even for the sake of success, even for the sake of wealth, even for the sake of a promotion, even for the sake of comfort, even for the sake of my own happiness. Well, when you get to verse 11, the trap 
is sprung. And these guys, they catch Daniel praying. Verse 12, they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? Is that what you said? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so they're like, well, we've got, we got a problem. Daniel, your little favorite there that you're getting ready to promote to the number two guy in the country, just happened to be walking down the street, walking my little shih tzu, and looked up in the window, and guess what I saw? I saw Daniel praying to his God. And it's kind of like nanny, 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 right? We got it. Verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. See, he loved Daniel. He respected Daniel. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. But there's a reason that most of us sitting here are familiar with the saying, the law of the Medes and Persians. Once it was in place, it was irrevocable. It was unchangeable. So you get to verse 16. The king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. So Daniel's put into the lion's den. King goes home, goes to bed, can't sleep. Tosses and turns for an hour, gets up, pops a couple of melatonin, can't sleep. A few minutes later, he gets up and pops a couple of Benadryl, still can't sleep. He's saying, this is really seriously. So he turns on the TV, finds a rerun, you know, of Dancing with the Stars. I mean, if that won't put you to sleep, nothing will put you to sleep. This is serious stuff. But do you know what I think? I think that Daniel was sound asleep in the lion's den by the time the, t the, the, the king pulled up the cover. See, Daniel, he doesn't have a care in the world, but the king can't sleep. He tosses and turns all night. And it says in verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God. Now that's interesting for a king who doesn't even believe in this God. Servant of the living God has your God, not my God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lion. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I mean, there's not even a nibble, right? And do you know what the king's response was? New rule. This rule was a stupid rule. We're changing everything. Forget the law of the Medes and Persians. 625, then King Darius, you got to notice this, wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. All people of all nations and every language on the earth. That means that Darius is getting ready to pass a law that is going to impact the entire known world in regards to Daniel's God. And so he says at the end of verse 25, may you prosper greatly. And then he writes in verse 26, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. 
His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In other words, Daniel changed the heart of not just one king, but two kings. So here's the question. Why was God able to use Daniel in such an incredible way? You say, well, Mike, it's because he was in such an influential position. Well, it was because he was so handsome and came from the right family. Because he must have had an incredible education. Right? It was because Daniel had decided... Regardless of what I'm facing, regardless of what it costs me, I will not disobey God. I will not compromise. I have drawn a line in the sand, and I am not going to cross it. Now, let me tell you something. When we think about living obediently, in the same way, do you know what God is looking for in you and, me, you and me? He's looking for men. He's looking for women. He's looking for students that have a passion to obey him. He's looking for people who can't be bought off. He's looking for people who can't be bribed. He's looking for people who are willing to say, I know it sounds strange. I know it makes sense. I know it's not politically correct, but I will not compromise my integrity and I will not disobey what God has called me to be and I will not disobey what God has called me to do. Now, let me tell you something. When you decide to live that way, you become a beacon in this dark world we live in. You become a flashing neon sign that cannot be ignored, and eventually people are going to ask you the burning question. Do you know what the burning question is? Why? Why won't you go there? Why won't you do that? Why won't you just sign it? Why won't you falsify the report? Why won't you exaggerate just a little bit if it'll make the sale happen? Why won't you spend the night? Why won't you get wasted like the rest of us, right? I mean, what's the big deal? And understand, it's at that moment that you have the opportunity as a Christian that otherwise you would not have. You have the opportunity to say to your friends, to your employer, to your peers, your co-workers, your classmates, your neighbors, it's because I love and I serve and I follow the true God, that's why. And regardless of what happens to me in this life, he is so real to me. I don't dare disobey him. And it's because what I have to lose in this life is nothing compared to what I have to lose by disobeying God. Now let me just tell you something. We live in a world that is so dark. We live in a world that is so screwed up. 
We live in a world that is so void of absolutes, people don't even know how to handle that conviction. We live in such a messed up world, we, we don't even know how to handle someone who has standards like that. It rocks their world, it makes them uncomfortable. You know, in fact, it'll make them angry. It'll make them angry. But if you choose to be a person of obedience to God, God is going to use you. You know why? It's because light cannot be ignored in the darkness. And sure, there's going to be some conflict. And sure, you're going to make some enemies. And sure, at times, you're going to be misunderstood. And yes, you may lose some promotions, and you may not make as much money, and you may miss out on some opportunities, and you might lose some friendships. I mean, you cannot bring light and darkness together without there being conflict. But if the Bible is clear about anything, it's this. When we choose to stand on God's side, we are always the winners in the end. But when, see, we compromise our integrity or when we disobey God for the sake of our finances or a relationship or a promotion or even our happiness, I'm telling you, you may not realize it yet, but we always look back with regret. So understand, God is looking for men. He's looking for women. He's looking for students to impact our cities, impact this nation, impact our world. You see, that's why God has put you in the job that you're in right now. That's why God had you find the roommate that you have right now. That's why God transferred that person that's so annoying into your office. That's why God brought you to the triangle, is to be a light in the darkness. And the only way that people are going to know that you're a light, hello, is if you act like a light. And do you know what a light acts like? It like acts like the opposite of darkness. I tell you what, I'm deep. It draws a line. It sets a standard. And the darker the environment, the brighter the light shines. And the brighter the light shines, the less people are able to ignore it because it stands in such stark contrast to what's going on in our world. And so here we are thousands of years later, and that's why God is still looking for people like Daniel. I mean, think about it. Two kings, two dynasties were impacted by Daniel. And in the same way, God has called us to have that kind of impact. But for us to have that kind of impact, it depends on our willingness to do what Daniel did, see. In other words, we have to resolve ahead of time. We have to decide ahead of time that we're not going to compromise. We're not going to disobey what this book says, regardless of what's at stake. We, we have to resolve that our obedience to God, at the end of the day, is more important than our happiness. It's more important than any else, anything else in this life. Now, I told you there's something about the story of Daniel that changes how you see it a little bit. Do you know what hangs in the balance of you choosing whether or not to be obedient? You don't know. That, that's just the point. You don't know. That's what makes this such a compelling principle. You don't know. 
Daniel didn't think, oh, I'm going to change the hearts of two kings and two dynasties. Nope, Daniel just got up and thought, you know what? I'm going to be obedient. He had no idea that somehow God was going to use that obedience to change two kings and two dynasties. Hey, he's just being obedient. Now, here's the scary part for us. When faced with the call to live obediently, we don't know what hangs in the balance or who hangs in the balance either because we don't know what God wants to do through us. I know people feel like I harp on it, but it's an easy example in our culture. I told you God designed marriage for a man and a woman, right? He designed sex, I mean, for a man and a woman in the, in the context of a committed marriage relationship. That's it. Now, I can't make this any simpler, but this is what the Bible teaches. Any sex outside of that is immorality. Okay? Anything outside of that is immorality. So if you're a young person, single adult, whatever, if you're sleeping with someone outside of marriage, it's immorality. It's wrong. It's disobedient. I guess that would be the word, right? Now, here's the thing. You're like, well, my good gracious, the culture we live in. I know it's the culture we live in, but here's the deal. What if you decided to be obedient? What if you decided, I don't care what everybody else is doing, I'm going to be obedient. I don't care if I stay single the rest of my life, I'm going to be obedient. You have no idea. You have no idea what God is going to do or who he's going to impact through you just being obedient. Somebody said I never really said anything about this, so let me just say this. Some of you, and I know some of you, you're here this weekend, you have a same-sex attraction. And let me just say, we're glad you're here. We need you here. You cannot help who you are attracted to. People often ask me, what is the church's position on, on same-sex attraction? I'm like, well, we don't really have church positions here. We have biblical positions, and there's nothing wrong with same-sex attraction. But if you act on it, then all of a sudden it moves into the category of sin. But if you have a same-sex attraction, God has called you to the same standard that he's called a heterosexual single who's not married. And that is to live a life of abstinence and a life of celibacy. You say, Mike, that's just not even realistic. Well, you know what? A few years ago, we actually had a couple here at Hope, two ladies, and, and I knew they were a couple, and they knew I knew they were a couple, but it didn't matter to me. You love them where you are, you know? And one week I had preached about the circle of obedience or the circle of blessability. And if you want to, if you want to be in a position where God can bless you, you've got to be, you've got to obey his principles, his laws, his rules, his precepts. You live outside of it, you're kind of on your own. Well, they came up to me afterwards and literally they both had tears in their eyes. They said, Pastor Mike, we want to, we want to be blessable. And I'm like, I know you do. So why do we do it? I'm like, well, I don't know. Probably under the portico is not blessed. They talk about it, but let's, let's talk about it, right? So one week between services, I sat down to talk with these ladies. They were probably in their, their late 30s, early 40s. And I said, this would be the biblical answer to your situation. You live as friends, but you live celibate. That's what God's called you to do. That would be obedience. That's what obedience looks like. And about two weeks later, they came back and said, Mike, we've decided to do that. The last time I saw them was about a year to a year and a half after that. It was after a Christmas Eve service, and they met me outside the portico at the Raleigh building. And they were moving to Raleigh, and they came to tell me they were moving to Raleigh. But they came up, they said, but we want to show you something. And on the wrist of both of their right hands, they had tattooed, blessable. Meaning, we kept our word. We're doing it God's way. 
And I told him, I said, you have no idea how God is going to use you because you're being obedient. Now, I know that's not a popular message. In fact, we just had a family leave because their daughter had a same-sex attraction. They said they needed to find a more progressive church. Let me just say this, parents. I know you want your kids to be happy. Who doesn't? But more importantly, you should want your kids to be obedient. And I will just tell you this. The only way they're truly going to be happy is to... No, 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 no. The only way they're truly going to be happy is to be obedient. And just so you know, you can always find a church that will believe anything that you want them to believe, that you want to believe. But do you really want to base your relationship with God and do you really want to base your eternal destiny on a church that's willing to change with every wind that blows through? Plus, eventually, they're going to change something you're going to like, so you're going to have to go find another church. That's why it's so important that we stand on the absolutes and the inerrancy of God's word. Maybe you're a parent this weekend. You want your children to grow up and love and follow God, avoid some of the mistakes that you made, and yet... There are just some habits, some sin in your life that are in such conflict with the values that you talk about with your kids. And yeah, they're still young, they're still kids, but you know what? They're beginning to catch on. They're beginning to catch on that what dad says and what dad does is different. Do you know what's at stake? It's the potential to reach your children. That's what's at stake because of your sin and disobedience, your unwillingness to bring your life into alignment with God's word. Or maybe you want to reach your neighbors, but you know, you party as hard on the weekend as they party, and there's nothing wrong with having a drink, but I got the Bible definitely says, don't get drunk, right? But do you know what's at stake? It's the ability to reach your neighbors because of your resistance to just being obedience. Let me tell you something. The biggest lie that we buy into in our lives is that the only consequence to our disobedience is the consequence to us. See? But you don't know what hangs in the balance. You don't know what's at stake. And so God says, basically, I'll tell you what's at stake. God says, your potential to be used by me in the lives of your friends and your family and your coworkers, your peers, that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. So you know what God is looking for? He's looking for men and women and students who've made up their minds. I'm just going to be obedient no matter what. Yeah, we're going to mess up sometimes. But man, we want to keep a short account with sin and we want to get back on the track of being obedient. I'm going to be obedient no matter what. And I'm telling you, when that becomes the driving force of your life, God will use you. God will use you. Do you know why? Because you're going to stick out like a bright light in a dark world. That's the power of living obediently. Let's bow together. What do you want God to use you to do? Who do you want God to use you to reach? I'm telling you, your potential hangs on your ability to make some tough decisions about maybe a few habits few relationships, maybe a few weekend activities. But I'm telling you, it could make all the difference in the world between what God 
is able and willing to do through your life. Earlier we sang a song for the first time and I jotted down some of the words and it said this, I will follow you anywhere. Wherever you lead me, but this is the line that caught my attention. Whatever it costs me, all I want is you. That's what discipleship looks like. And so my question to you this weekend, is that the way that you've determined to live your life? It doesn't mean you're not going to sin. It doesn't mean that you're not going to slip up. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have moments of weakness. But by the power of God and his grace and strength, God, I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to obey you. And I'm going to position myself to be used by you of those around me. Father, thank you. One that you would even use us because we're all fallible. John chapter 8, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. We all got, we all live in glass houses. And none of us are going to be perfect. But is that our desire? Is it our desire? Teach us to be a group of people who are committed to living obediently doesn't mean we don't love people but we don't want to leave them where they are we want to bring them into what they can be with you Father I can't wait to see what you're going to do in our lives in your name we pray